Welcome to the Captain Paul Watson Foundation podcast. I'm your host, Charlie, and today I'm joined with Violet Coco. She is an environmental protection activist with the A22 Network and Extinction Rebellion. Violet, how are you today? Hi, Charlie. I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. So I I always start off with this question. I wanted to ask you, uh, what got you involved uh, as an activist? Oh, it's the, um, yeah, very very common question. Um, So I guess I found out that, um, yeah, uh, we're on a trajectory to an uninhabitable planet. And, uh, and, you know, recently there was a report that was released saying that there's no credible pathway to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming, which means that we're risking a cascade into that uninhabitable earth. And, um, and that means that we'll see low-lying nation states disappear, um, reefs disappear, which are the nurseries to the ocean, which means mass starvation, um, we're going to see a lot of extreme weather, which we're seeing now. I live um, in on Widgeable Wyable country, which is in the northern rivers. We've just had massive flooding here. And, um, you know, we see 6,000 homes destroyed. And, um, and that means mass migration, refugees from inside our country, food and water shortages, which obviously lead to conflict. And so I'm just you know, looking at what's happening around the world. And I, I feel, I feel scared for the trajectory of my, you know, the kids in my family, what kind of world they're going to experience. And so, um, and so I started to do some research into, you know, how to make social change and what the most powerful ways that we can make social change. And, um, and you know, and looking into why why it's we're still heading down this pathway of um, of emissions. You know, Australia here is um, one of the largest exporters of carbon emissions, and um, and our government actually subsidizes the fossil fuel industry at twenty two thousand dollars a minute. So we're being really failed by our government, and um, and obviously our media are not really explaining and and talking about the truth of how serious this issue is. And, uh, oh, and yeah, I just, um, I think like, how can we get this message out to people that, um, that it's an emergency and, and why aren't they telling the truth? And I think a lot of them say, oh, you know, you, we don't want to tell the truth because it'll scare people. Um, but the truth is that if, if a fire is coming towards your house, like you're going to want to you want the you want the fire brigade to knock on your door and wake you up and say, "Hey, there's a fire coming." Um, not let you sleep because they don't want to disturb you. So, so anyway, with those sort of things in mind, I was like, "How do we make fast and a powerful social change?" And and you know, the reality of the situation is is that whenever we've had great injustices throughout history, and you could consider this the greatest injustice we've ever faced, you know the a death of our habitable planet, um, social civil resistance or protest has been at the forefront of, of that change. And, and indeed it's one of the most powerful and effective ways to make social change. And so, um, yeah, I guess I got involved because it seemed like the appropriate response to the threat that we're facing at the moment and, and the most powerful thing that I could do to try and change the trajectory and, I do believe we ha- can have a, a better trajectory. It just is going to take a lot of courage and, um, yeah, 
that's what we're doing. Well, so so speaking of courage, uh, you you received a medal of courage from Captain Watson. What was that like? Um, yeah, it was um, it was very sweet, and I felt really humbled. Um, obviously, like you know, when we take these acts, I'm just one person as part of a big team, and so. You know, it was a big celebration for all of us, our whole team, to be uh, engaged in uh, or, like, recognised, I suppose, and and especially about the um, the seas. You know, it was for courage and protection of the sea and, like, um, yeah, I think there's possibly, a, like, a divide. We think a lot about the forests and the land and stuff and then obviously Captain Paul's been doing a lot of work to protect the ocean and, and that, um, the crew there, Sea Shepherd and, and Will Paul Watson Foundation. And so um, it was really, it felt like a real olive branch between like the sea and the land. And yeah, um, the whole team thought it felt really validated by it. So it was really sweet. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Well, so let's talk about that a little bit too, because we, we did talk about, um, you know, Paul's new organization, the Captain Paul Watson Foundation, and, you know, he has an older organization, Sea Shepherd. And so what, I guess, within your circles, ha- have people commented on that split? Do, pe- do people, uh, you know, is that something that, that they know about in Australia? Or is it just kind of people are kind of oblivious to it? Yeah, it's it's reaching through the networks. I wouldn't say like it's a mainstream media on Australian news or anything, but certainly through the activist network, there's some attention. And um, I find it very interesting because I think it's, it's, again, a mirror of the sea and the land activists are sort of having this same thing where um, we have what we call like the radical flank. And um, so, you know, when we engage in activism, you have sort of the, or um, any political idea, really, there's this thing called the Overton window, which is often shaped like a bell curve. And so in the middle is sort of the public appropriate response to a particular issue. And then, and then you have, you know, you're petering out of that appropriate response. And so as activists, we're sort of on the edge of the bell curve, trying to drive the appropriate response to the collapse of our habitable planet and um, and so, uh, yeah, obviously we're sort of more on the radical flank driving and normalising a, a sounding of the alarm and, and trying to um, engage people in that way. And, and so it seems like almost that's potentially what's happened between the Paul Watson Foundation and Sea Shepherd and what we've had on land between Extinction Rebellion and the A22 network. So Extinction Rebellion of sort of positioning themselves a little bit closer into the bell curve um, by saying that they're not going to be blocking roads for 100 days. They're normalizing themselves and making themselves the less radical um, option to the A22 network, which is um, engaging in what we call the dance strategy, which is disruption and non-compliance escalation, which is where you... um, pick a period and you just engage in civil resistance for as long as possible um, until you either get your demands met or you're in prison or so repressed by the state that you can't move. And that's the dance strategy. 
um, disruption and non-compliance escalation. And so, um, and so that's obviously like creating this radical flank where people are willing to go to prison for the movement. And then you have one step in, which is more like your party protest, which is extinction rebellion. And then potentially one step in from that, we now have like the greens or whatever. Mm. And so you've got, um, you know, this happening at sea maybe where, you know, Sea Shepherd has created these relationships with, um, countries to be able to operate with them and um, and doing really valuable and important work to um, that that and but but if if Sea Shepherd were to engage in civil resistance, um, then potentially they would be uh, you know like damage those relationships of the important work and so there's the split that's happened that's that's the radical flank of the sea yeah. <laughs> go Paul and so and so the people who are more drawn to direct action and 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 driving the appropriate response are now sort of having that split. I th- I think that's really cool that we've like you know had that happen. You know, it's obviously showing the necessity of it, um, and that's happened both land, land and sea. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And you know, Paul's you know what what matters to Paul right is that if someone's out there trying to harpoon a whale, he's going to stop it. You know, there are international laws that suggest that, you know, Paul has every right to stop it and and Paul's going to, you know, do what governments won't. But at the same time, um, then there's other organizations that, you know, will kind of, hey, could could you maybe not hurt the whales this year? You know, that that's kind of their approach, (laughs) right? And Paul's approach is no. You know, if you're going to go after whales, then, then we'll put our ships between you and the whale and we'll make sure that you can't harpoon them. And I'm and so you're right, you know, there, there is a need for um, that escalation and, and somebody that's, quite frankly, to your point, uh, willing to go to jail, willing to put their life on the line. As Paul asks his crew members, are you willing to, you know, give your life for the life of a whale? Um, you know, those are important things. And, and so, you know, back to you, though, you've, you've done that. I mean, you've... Um, you know, I guess recently you've been sentenced to a, to a prison term. How, how are you, what, what is that like? I mean, I know that your, your beliefs have drawn you right to this moment and you're standing up for what you believe in. And yet you stand before a a judge uh, in court and they hand down this ridiculous sentence to you uh, which many others 15 have, months. yeah, fifteen months. Which many others have commented on and said it's ridiculous. It just could you please just give our listeners an idea of what that's like? Oh uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I was standing next to my mom, and so I felt like um, I wanted to be strong for her. And, um, but I was well prepared. I had made a video in case I went in and, um, and I think like I, I knew it was coming as soon as I stepped in the courtroom, I could feel the energy dripping off the magistrate. So, um, but yeah, I felt calm. I felt like I knew what I was doing and um, I, I was sad for my mom because she was taking it really hard and I I wanted to protect her um, and I they wouldn't let me give her one last hug and so that was challenging and I I guess, it, yeah, it was the hardest part was watching what it did to her. She she collapsed as they were pulling me away. Um, but on, on my end, you know, like um, 
for my I wasn't worried for myself. Uh, it was not the first time I'd gone to prison. Um, as you know, sort of, uh, um, I also I burned a, a pram uh, last year as the IPCC report came out that called a code red for humanity. I bought burn a pram that day outside Parliament House, and then they tried to give me bail conditions that um, that prohibited me from protesting, and so I refused to sign them, and I spent two weeks um, in prison. Um, and then when I got in front of a judge, they, um, they wiped all the bail conditions, but, um, yes. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, like I'd, I'd been in prison before, um, that was a way that I'd kind of, um, experienced it with a bit of power. Um, because if I, I knew that I could sign at any point if I wanted to leave, um, during that previous one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so when it came to being actually sentenced, I was um, I was prepared. I knew what I was in for, and um, and yeah, I knew that I would have an opportunity to appeal. And so um, that appeal is happening on the fifteenth of March, um, and I'm confident that um, yeah, it will go well. But obviously, there's a little part of me that's like, why did you go to prison? Right, sure, <laughs> but. But, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, like looking throughout history again at what we're trying to achieve, you know, many people have gone to prison for our rights, our right to um, vote as a woman, you know, the mm-hmm. suffragettes went to prison, they had their children taken off them, um, all kinds of awful things, um, the, suff- the civil rights movement, um, the Gandhian movement, you know, all in, in Australia here, we were the first place to get the eight hour working day. And the guy who, one of the guys who did that got over a hundred lashes, um, for his activism. So, you know, um, I'm prepared to do what it takes because we've just got so much at stake. So much is at stake and we have to have the courage. Well, and there's a lot, there's a lot that I can say there. Um, but, but what I really want to say is thank you for doing what you're doing. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that feel the way you feel, but don't have the courage to do what you're doing. Uh, the, you know, the world is full of amazing, special people and some people find their calling and they, they run to it no matter the, the consequence. Um, and, you know, I think a lot about Paul and yourself, um, you know, Paul's had the Japanese government after him for many, many years, and he lives with that over his head, uh, but he doesn't let it stop him and he doesn't let it slow him down. And you're a shining example of, of a similar resolve. So, you know, th- thank you for that. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that are feeling the same thing that I'm feeling, uh, but I would ask, is there anything that folks in Australia or around the world could do uh, to help you before March 15th? Is there any, is there anything that people can say or is there something they can sign? Is there anything? You know, my preference is that just you put the energy into finding the courage to do what's necessary. I, yeah. Like I've got my team, I'm supported, um, you know, always alongside the these issue when these like justice issues come out in history the need for protest rises um there's always a a co-conversation about the right to protest 
And so in engaging in both the discourse about the right to protest and um, engaging in the discourse about the climate emergency is really important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that that's something that, uh, you know, being alongside Paul and seeing the way he operates, uh, it's no nonsense, you know, that there's work that has to be done. There are atrocities that are being committed daily uh, against our oceans and our terrestrial environments. And the time to wake up is now. And uh, that urgency, I think, is what, you know, drives Paul and and people like yourself uh, to do what you're doing. So, so, okay, so we're all going to be rooting for you on March 15th. I think, you know, everybody around the world, if you're listening, send all your positive vibes to Violet on March 15th. And uh, I'll certainly check back in with you. And hopefully maybe we could have another conversation after March 15th, uh, uh, maybe a celebratory conversation. Um, I think that would make our audience really happy. I, I did want to ask you, Violet, too, because this this was in the news and, you know, being here in the United States, it, it dominated uh, media coverage for a while back in 2019 and 2020 as the Australian uh, bushfires, brushfires, excuse me. Um, you know, what, what was that like to go through and, and how has that shaped uh, maybe some of your thoughts and feelings on on what you're doing now? Well. Yeah, I think around that time was really um, where I had a lot of urgency put in me. Um, My sister was pregnant when the bushfires happened and, um, you know, she couldn't leave the house because the smoke was toxic. It was the first time we all wore masks. It wasn't for COVID. It was for the fact that this toxic bushfire smoke, which really damaged the cognitive ability of children and um, vulnerable people, pregnant women and elderly um, and uh, obviously, you know, anybody with any um, asthma or anything, they just couldn't couldn't leave the house. Um, the skies were orange. Um, the, there was actually so much smoke that it encircled the globe uh, and it released more. Yeah, it was coming back around on us. Wow. And um, it released more, more like CO2 emissions than like our Australia's yearly, you know, um, budget I don't there's no budget but you know whatever we normally release in a year it was it was released more than that but but I think you know being on the ground it's it's a few years later now obviously and um, I was recently in the Blue Mountains and uh, it's you know it's still a graveyard like uh, the the bush is not regenerating very quickly it's really quiet like Three billion animals died. Um, Australia is leading the way in mammal extinction, and um, and we just we have like such a, a rich biodiversity here in Australia, and um, uh, and it is rapidly depleting. And and um, anybody who lives sort of around nature, they're just noticing these all these beautiful, cute little creatures that are just disappearing right in front of our eyes, and. Um, uh, yeah, and so uh, right here, like around Lismore, there's um, Double Duke State Forest, which is a, you know, it's it's really damaged by the fires, and um, and they're going in and they're logging it. They're pulling out little twigs of the these burnt logs so that they can 
um, use it for mulch or whatever. And, um, and it's ecocide, you know, like the, this forest needs to regenerate and it's not being regenerated. I think o- over like about half of Australia's bushland and forest burnt, including areas that like have never burnt before, like rainforest, you know, big lush rainforest. And, wow. and, and I can't believe that they're continuing to log these forests, mm. you know, like our, our bushland just needs to regenerate and it's, um, it's devastating. It is. And so, you know, I, I had a conversation a week or two ago with uh, a Natalie uh, from Brazil. Uh, and, you know, I talked to her about the burden of the people in Brazil, uh, that they must protect the, the Amazonian rainforest, uh, that the world won't survive without it. And what's that burden like? And similarly, Australia is such a unique place. I mean, all the marsupials, all the different uh, reptiles, you know, I I just, it's such a unique environment. And, you know, the Australian people have, have that burden to protect it, to, to cherish it. And, you know, your, your cassowaries up there in the rainforest and um, all, all the little you know, I, I don't know all the little names of all those little marsupials you guys have that look half kangaroo and half mouse. <laughs> There's too many of them. That's to name. right. That's exactly the one that we've just commented has gone missing recently. Yes, I know. And it's like this tiny little kangaroo cross mouse. And they, they have the cutest names, but I can't remember half of them. Um, but it, it is, it, it's the urgency is, is now the urgency is, is upon us to, to protect these, you know, these animals that will disappear and that have been, you know, trapped on the Island of Australia for, for millennia. Um, it just, it, it makes me sad to think that a portion of that biodiversity because Australia is extremely biodiverse and that, and that's, what's so amazing about Australia is that it's, it's out there all on its own. You know, you, you all, I, I, it's just, it's so unique and so different. And and if you haven't been there and if you, and if you haven't, you know, if you haven't, that's fine. Just go online, <laughs> start looking up the yeah. unique animals of Fail Australia. Here. Fail yeah, here. Just do whatever you have to do to get there. Um, I know, you know, I know there's, there's ways for you to see some of these amazing. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's beautiful. And, and the other thing about Australia, obviously, is that we've got one of the oldest living cultures here on Australia. Oh, yeah. um, and the First Nations people in Australia have been here potentially since time immemorial. And, um, and, you know, they managed to live here for that long without damaging the ecosystems and by protecting these creatures. And, and the way that they do that is by considering this nature as part of the family. Yes. You know, they have, they, it's, 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 you know, one of them and, and not a resource to be exploited. And I think that that's really important for us to acknowledge within ourselves this colonial consumerist um, exploitative attitude where the world is here for us to use mm. um, and rather and 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 change that to a place where we believe that that there is you know that nature has a right to exist of its own on its own like yeah. without without needing to serve us and um, and that fundamental shift which, could be considered like eco law or uh, eco side law, which is like making it illegal to kill it, 
or I believe there's another term, natural rights, natural or I've got it here written down, natural rights order or something. Um, and and yeah, giving it the right to live on its own. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, uh, one of the things rights that, of nature. Yeah. Yeah, and, and one of the things too is the the economics of all this, right? I mean, by us exploiting the environment, it allows us to live uh, and purchase things at a much cheaper cost. But if if an economist were to sit down with an environmentalist and truly calculate the actual cost of mining or the actual cost of a tree, right? Like, let, you know, let's say we wanted to make a desk for our room. You know, well, that desk has a value and that value is determined by, you know, the economy of things and, you know, how much it costs to create it, how much you have to pay the guy to, you know, uh, cut it and put nails in it and put it together. But there's a hidden cost to all this. That tree helped purify the air. That tree and its roots helped solidify the soil. That tree provided a home for some birds and potentially geckos and, yeah, all other things. And we as a species have, have not considered that economic cost. What's interesting, though, is that if you do get out in nature, it's free. <laughs> right? I mean, some of, the, some of the most wonderful times that I've ever had in my life are in nature, either watching animals or having an experience with, with an animal, whether it's terrestrial or in the ocean. And so while our consumerism allows us to buy all these things and live in these, you know, lavish places and surround ourselves with technology and such, you know, we, we could... I think make do with less and engage with the natural world more and still be as happy. Um, happier. 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 Yeah. Happier. So yeah, we need degrowth. A hundred percent need degrowth. We need to be, you know, like using less. And um, have you heard of Edward Bernays? No. So I, I, you know, I ended up in philosophy at uni, but I started there in marketing and I came across this guy, Edward Bernays. Okay. And he's the, he's the nephew of Freud, right? Okay. And, um, and basically, so I had on one side of the uni, we were studying Edward Bernays and Edward Bernays basically changed marketing from being like, this is a shoe. It will, you know, help you not hurt your back when you run because it's going to, you know, take the comfort to like, this is a shoe. It's going to make you feel sexy and want people to make people love you and blah, blah, blah. Um, he like, he sold cigarettes to women by, cause it was around the time like women's liberation was really kicking off. And so he would, he like hired these models to stand at the front of the Women's Liberation March and smoke their cigarettes saying, you know, it's your um, women's liberation stick. And that's how he, like, sold cigarettes to women and it was their power stick or whatever. So so basically, Edward Bernays is the devil. And, and he convinced us all that, like, purchasing these things will, like, that's the start of where, you know, marketing really kicked off is purchasing things will, like, give you these fundamental um, human desires where, but it doesn't, right. And nobody mm. like, you know, it's, it's, it's consumerism and buying things. It, it's a very short term dopamine hit. Whereas yeah, sitting, you know, watching the ocean or being in a lush forest, like that gives you such a deep, deep sense of appreciation for the world that like lasts, you know, and yeah. if you don't, 
get that, then, uh, you know, you sort of, I feel you become depressed and that's where you, you know, start to lean on these sort of this consumerist buying behavior to fill this void that, that truly is really only needs to be filled with nature. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. No, it's just, you know, Paul, I, I was watching an interview with Paul, um, and he said, you know, you, you, you have, we have to evolve, right? All organisms have to evolve. And, and I feel like as, you know, humans, we're, we're at this fork in the road, right? Where we, we can evolve in a way that includes nature and in, in a way that uses our capabilities, our technology, um, you know, all the, all the things that we've learned over the centuries, right? We can use that for good, right? And we can start protecting and we can start uh, learning how to live in harmony with nature or we can use those technologies like what happened with the whales, right? We can invent a grenade harpoon and kill way more whales than we did before and just completely decimate all the, the natural world around us. So, so we can evolve in different ways, right? We can evolve to be vegan, right? We, we, can, we can choose to be kind to animals now, right? We can. Um, or we can use our intellect and things for, you know, dire consequences for, for what's around us. Now, what, what's interesting, though, is that it, it seems like a very obvious choice to you and I. But I think to many people, it's not so obvious because of the short terms of our lifetimes, Right. But what's interesting, though, is that because of things like the Australian bushfire and other climate change um, disasters that are happening around us, it's starting to happen within people's lifetimes. They're not, they're not able to kick that can down the road and maybe say, well, you know, I'm not going to be affected by the fact that there's no more cod in the sea. I'm not going to be affected by the fact that there's, you know, no more fin whales. So what do I care? But now people are experiencing that they're in a house that they purchased and there's fire uh, coming towards their house. Um, and, there, and there's people around the world, obviously, that need water, uh, you know, because weather patterns have been shifted. So I, I think we can cap, well, we can make the most of that urgency, right? We can make the most of those changes and try to get people to make a change in their own life that then promotes some sort of positive change. And so we're at a very interesting point uh, as a, as humans. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting. You've got this individual change, you know, everybody has a personal responsibility to be, you know, engaging with the world as ethically as they can, but, you know, there's no such thing as ethical consumption under capitalism. You know, we have, the violence that it's incurred on our natural world is hidden in the products that we buy and we don't have the control over that. And, and so it can be so overwhelming and expensive if you're, you know, to, to engage in, in the world in an ethical way, which is why we need to shift our society and, um, and really like a majority of emissions are created by the wealthy, the wealthy 3%, 1%, you know, they're, they're around there. That's the majority is sitting in there. And so 
we need to, you know, not just focus on the individual, but focus on system change. We can't just ignore what these people are doing. Like I could go and live in a forest and have a zero emissions life, but at the end of the day, they're going to come and knock down that forest because there are greedy people out there who just want to continue to eat everything this land has to offer because they don't care. They think they'll be okay. They think that their money will protect them. They think they'll be able to get a ticket to Mars or something. Hmm. And and that's not enough for me. You know, I there, there is no planet B. This is my home and I will defend it. And, um, and going off and, and, you know, focusing on my individual consumptive habits is not going to protect it from these people. What's going to protect it is nonviolent civil resistance against the destruction and the death machine that is occurring on our planet. So we, we have to stand in the way of, of these wealthy people who are, who are, you know, making money, which we can't eat <laughs> off the destruction, like here in Double Duke, this forest, you know, like they're getting grants from our government to log the forest. It's some, like some person, some CEO is just making a whole bunch of money off murdering this planet, this, you know, forest. And it's just, it's not acceptable to me. And so, yeah, we, you know, yeah. yeah, I think that's my point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, well, not, let's not just focus on our individual consumption. Let's let's force some system change. Actually, on that, yeah, I just I think it's a really good time to talk about Extinction Rebellion yes. because um, that's what I find so interesting about Extinction Rebellion is their third demand, which is citizens' assemblies. So basically, it's it's um it's a different form of democracy because let's be honest, any system of government that has that has created a death machine that is allowing our planet to be destroyed. Like as much as, you know, it's, it, it's got to, it's failed us. It's absolutely failed us. You know, the trajectory is an uninhabitable earth right now. So whoever's in charge, whatever government system you have, they've, you know, right. so we have to stand in the way. We have to find another way to organize and mobilize society in a just democratic way that isn't going to and so, um, and so citizens assemblies is a, is a really, um, it's another form of democracy. It's what the Greeks first imagined when they came up with democracy. It's where the term roped in comes from. They like rope in people who are in the middle of the square and they would like become the government for the day. Now we'd use sortition, which is a, a like a representative selection of the population. Um, and, and it's about deliberation. So people come together, they're advised by the science, they're advised about bias. So like they're given resources and then they're taught to like look into who's written the resource and why they might, like what kind of, how that might affect their, the way that the information is presented. They're facilitated through deliberation in small groups. And um, and we've used them all around the world to, to talk about really contentious issues, and they always come up with really awesome out-of-the-box solutions with this format. And so I really believe that we need binding citizens' assemblies around the world to um, to replace these governments that have absolutely failed us. Wow. Yeah, and I, I haven't heard of that before, so that that's fascinating. Um so and and so getting these citizens assemblies then would would allow i guess the everyday people then to be heard in a, in a real meaningful way yeah 
Yeah, people who um, aren't being bought by, you know, fossil fuel industries, who not it's not the rich in control who think that they're making money and able to escape to a planet B. Like it's it's people who live here, who, um, you know, are working, who, you know, are from um, different parts of society that are more repressed. So, you know, First Nations representation, all this stuff that you know our democracy at the moment is completely lacking it's 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 just been bought by vested interests we have uh they call it state capture the state's been captured by the fossil fuel industry you know yeah. by big money and so yeah well and 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 thus the need for direct action the need for That's more right. than just talking to them please stop yeah we need people power we need people power on board because, you know, uh, Professor Hans Schellenhuber says we're in the end game where we have to um, decide between taking unprecedented action or accepting that it's too late and bearing the consequences. Wow. And so what, yeah, that's that's Professor Hans Schellenhuber. And, and we had uh, here in Australia, one of our most eminent climate scientists has just passed away. Um, big love and solidarity to Will Stefan and his family. And um, and he says that, you know, we're, we are on a hell on earth trajectory and that we, we, you know, have to acknowledge our rampant consumerism as a massive part of that. Yeah. Um, that's not a direct quote, but that's the, yeah. the gist of it. And, yeah. and so, you know, I, um, the hell on earth part is his words. So, right. and oh, and that we're looking for a, a. He says, "What does he say? A um, rapid drop in human population mm. if we don't address this." So, you know, there is no greater injustice, no greater threat that the human race has ever faced. Yeah. You know, this is extinction crisis. That's why it's extinction rebellion. Yeah. Uh, well put. Well put. And and Paul, uh, you know, says, and I've heard him say this a few different times, is. You know, an, an impossible problem requires an impossible solution, but it's out there, you know, and I, I don't know what it looks like. I, I don't know what shape it might take. Um, but to your point, things are dire and what we're doing right now isn't working. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I do believe that all the solutions that we need are out there. That's what gives me hope to keep going is that yeah. we can turn this ship around. We can mend this trajectory nothing is set in stone when it comes to the amazing capacity of humans to have creativity and to to um you know we will if we can just have an emergency speed transition where everybody just like we did in covid just like a wartime footing but but to protect our the habitability of our planet it's so possible we just have to have the will. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's very well said. Violet, I, I will say it has been such a pleasure speaking with you today. I really appreciate you joining me on the Captain Paul Watson Foundation podcast. Uh, I, You know what? Hopefully we get good news on March 15th, but I do want to have you back on the podcast. And I want to, you know, one way or another at some time, we do need to catch up and, and see how things are going for you. 
Well, we can if if things don't go well, I can maybe give you. I can do ten minute phone calls from inside, so we could do a little ten yeah. minute edition. Okay, per- perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I hope it doesn't come to that. No, it will go well. Yeah, no, no. it's not going to come to that. Not, Good, not this time anyway. Wonderful. Well, I'm <laughs> so glad to hear that. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And until next time, we'll talk again. Thanks, Charlie. All right, thank you, Violet. Bye. I want to thank Violet Coco, not just for spending time with me today on the podcast, but more importantly, for putting her freedom on the line to help protect our planet. Uh, Violet, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and we all wish you the best, uh, especially on March 15th. I hope people around the world are able to send you uh, some positive vibes, and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk uh, soon after that. If you would like to know more about uh, Violet and some of the causes that she is passionate about, you can go to stopffs.org. Again, that's the word stop and then the letter F, the letter F again, and then the letter S.org. And if you go there, you can find more about uh, the causes that she's passionate about. Uh, The FFS stands for uh, Stop Fossil Fuel Subsidies. So anyway, if you'd like to uh, help Violet and get involved, uh, please do go to that website. If you want to know more about what's going on uh, at the Captain Paul Watson Foundation, uh, please go to paulwatsonfoundation.org, and there uh, you can learn about things going on at the foundation and also uh, sign up for our newsletter. This episode is brought to you by Macratus Legatus. If the oceans die, we die.